0: You guys can turn to the book of Genesis chapter 34 is is about where we'll start. We'll be around there this morning. Uh, today we are going to talk about parenting. We're going to look at Jacob. We looked at him last week. We're going to look at a story that, that occurred just next in the text, so kind of where we left off last week, what happened next. We're going to see from Jacob some lessons in parenting, both good and bad. And if I've learned anything being a parent now for the last 8 years is that there's nothing quite like parenting to bring out the worst in a person. Because for 33 years before I had kids, I thought I was a really patient person. Like my my kind of self-image of myself, like when I thought about my character, my attributes, I thought, "Well, I'm I'm an understanding guy. I'm compassionate, I'm I'm slow to anger, I'm considerate, I'm kind, and then I had kids, and they taught me that I'm not nearly as selfless as I thought I was. I never thought I could yell at anyone, and I was proven wrong because parenting can bring out the worst in us because it's so hard. It's so intense, and and it's so stressful. It's the hardest job I've ever had, and unlike other jobs, you can't quit. It's 24-7, 365. You're always in it. It, it owns you, and so it can bring out the worst in us. And that's what we're going to see in the first half of the sermon this morning. We're going to see parenting bring out the worst in Jacob. We're going to learn from some of the mistakes that he made in his family. And And the goal here is to learn from him so that we can avoid those mistakes. But we're not going to end the sermon with his failures. We're going to see him turn the corner. And we're going to see how how God helped him to grow as a father. How how God brought healing and hope to his family. Because we're going to see that God can also bring the best out of us when we're parents. We're going to see how God can bring hope. And healing even in the midst of a family that that really has fallen apart. Things went really bad in Jacob's family. And we're going to see that even when a father has blown it, God can still bring incredible restoration. So we're going to end on a high note this morning as we see all the good that God can bring even after past failures. So we're going to look at Jacob as a parent this morning. And I know that for some of you, that's going to feel like a sermon you could check out of because you're not parents. And so for you, you feel like, what can I get from this message? Well, I would encourage you to to follow along and pay attention for a couple reasons. First of all, some of you one day will be parents and the time to learn how to parent is not when you are actually a parent because you will not have the mental space to learn anything. When you become a parent, you will be sleep deprived, you'll be overwhelmed, you'll be a walking zombie. You can't learn in the midst of that. So I would encourage you to pay attention so that you can learn ahead of time. Second, I would encourage all of us to pay attention, whether you are a parent, will be a parent, will never be a parent, because all of us are products of parenting. And what I mean by that is that all of us have learned behaviors in our lives from our parents. Probably there's no one who's influenced our character and our approach to life more than our parents. And some of their influence has been good. They taught us good things that we should celebrate and we should follow in their footsteps. But some of the things they've taught us are not good. And that's true in every family. All parents make mistakes, myself included. And so what we need to do as as products of our parents, is we need to think honestly about what they've passed on to us. What were the good lessons that we can celebrate? What were the not-so-good lessons that we need to see and acknowledge? Because here's something that you may not have recognized in life. All sin is inherently generational. And what I mean by that is that because we learn how to do life from our parents when they operate in a sinful way, whatever sins they commit... We're going to pick those up and and we're going to follow in their example without even thinking about it. That's the power of parenting. And so what we need to do is we need to recognize where our parents maybe weren't doing the best job in following Jesus. We need to recognize that so that we can be the break in that chain of generational sin. And my hope this morning as we look at Jacob's example is that for all of us we'll recognize where our parents fell short, because all of us parents do, and we'll see that and we'll we'll recognize that and we'll turn away from that. And we'll set a new example for our kids and for the people around us. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at Jacob, first the lows, then the highs. So we're going to learn two examples of bad parenting and two examples of good parenting from Jacob. So we'll start with the bad. We're going to look and see what mistakes he made in, in his parenting, in his family. So, right off the bat, if you're looking in chapter 34, actually skip a couple verses before the end of chapter 38. We're going to see Jacob make the first big mistake. He's going to compromise with sin. And it's hard to see if you don't know the background, it, it seems like an insignificant detail. So, let me walk you through this. If you look at the end of chapter 33, verse Verse 18. It says, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Pedan Aram and camped before the city. Now that, that seems completely insignificant. He came safely to a city. This is right after he met his brother last week. Remember, he met Esau. Things went great. He did not expect them to go well. Now he settles down next to the city of Shechem. He arrives there safely. It seems really good. There's just one problem. If you leave your finger here and turn back just a little bit to chapter 28. Chapter 28 verse 20. So right at the end of chapter 28. It says, Then Jacob made a vow. He's speaking to God saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So this was when Jacob was leaving the land of of Israel to go to his relative, to Laban's house. And he makes a promise to God. He says, God, if If you bring me safely back to my homeland, I will dwell here. I will worship you here in this place. Now, God had kept up his end of that bargain. God had watched over Jacob, protected Jacob, blessed Jacob richly. So now Jacob was expected to come back to this place. Well, what is this place? It's Bethel. It's a place in the middle of the wilderness of Israel. And it looks like this. You can see it's very inhospitable The ground is covered with big stones. You can't grow stuff there. I don't even know how you'd build a house there. It's beautiful in a very rugged way. And so no one lived there. There was no stream there. There was not actually a town called Bethel. It was just like the wilderness area called Bethel. It was very inhospitable. Jacob had promised, God, I'll come back and worship you there. But the reality of that started to set in as Jacob was coming back. He started to realize, wow, that... That's not exactly where I want to hang out. And so here's what Jacob does. He's going to make just a very little compromise with sin. And and it looks like this. God is going to call Jacob to leave a place called Haran, where where Laban lived. And it's far up to the north, way above the map that you're seeing on the screen. And so Jacob is going to come down into Israel. And Bethel is where the arrow ends. There's nothing there. It's just that place, middle of the wilderness. Jacob knows that's where I promised to go. But as he gets really close close he sees oh wait a minute there's a town right over there it's called Shechem and it's very wealthy Shechem had had good fields so they had a surplus of of all kinds of vegetables and meat and grain and and crops and animals livestock it was a wonderful place to live that's why people lived there it was very nice and so Jacob gets I mean what is that got it's got to be at least 90 percent of the way right maybe 95 percent of the way to where he promised he would go and then at the very end he says, Well I'll just I'll just deviate a little bit. I mean we're talking a few miles, not a big deal. I'm just gonna I'm gonna peel off just a little bit so I can be a little more comfortable. So I can live in a place that's pleasant. So I can enjoy my, this would be his retirement years. He's built his fortune. Now I want to live in someplace comfortable. So he makes a little compromise with sin so that he can live in a a, a much nicer place. And we don't know what was going through his mind. Was he thinking maybe next year I'll go down to Bethel? Or was he thinking, well, God, I got 95% of the way there. Surely we can call that done. We don't know how he justified it. We just know he made this little compromise with sin so he could be more comfortable. That was his first really big mistake, and it sets him up for his second really big failure as a parent. So, Jacob, he compromises with sin, and then he's going to check out. And by check out, I mean he's going to disengage with his family. He's going to get down to just enjoying his life over here, and he's going to pull back from caring about his family, his wives, and his kids. And that really comes out in chapter 34. So, turn back over to chapter 34, it gets very tragic. It's a really hard story. So, chapter 34, verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Now, you read that, it doesn't seem like anything to us, but actually, this is an incredibly bad decision. Verse 1 is, is very bad, like the really dangerous music would be playing in the movie right now. Why? Because as a young single woman, you should never go out on your own, and that's what she does. As best we can tell, she would have been around 15 years old now. And she chooses to to go out and visit, it says, the daughters of the land, meaning she's going to go out and, and, and hang out with some people and go hang out in Shechem and visit the, the surrounding area on her own and and that's incredibly dangerous because this is almost this is around 3800 years ago in human history if you were a young single woman you never went out alone why because there wasn't law and order back then you go out alone you're going to be taken advantage of something really bad is going to happen to you now whose fault is this well it's really not dinah's at 15 years old she's she's vulnerable she doesn't know better whose fault is this her parents particularly her dad, who should have never let her go out on her own. He should either said no or go with her or send her brothers to watch over her. He should have protected her and he doesn't. And so the exact thing you would expect to happen in the ancient world happens. She is kidnapped and raped by a very powerful man, the son of the leader of the city of Shechem. And and when you read that, we won't read all that, when you read it, the thing is, it surprises us. It would not have surprised him. Of course that happened. This was a horrible thing for her dad to allow to happen. What's surprising is that the guy who assaults her, he actually falls in love with her. And he wants to have her as his wife. And so this man, his name is Shechem. It's kind of confusing. Same name as the city. So in the city of Shechem, there's a man named Shechem. He's powerful, son of the ruler. He takes Dinah. He wants to marry her. Let's pick up the story in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, that is Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to speak with him, out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. Now the key here, as you, as you read this passage The key as you look at verse 5 is to notice that there are no emotional words in verse 5. Jacob hears what? Think about what he just heard. His daughter, his 15-year-old daughter. Think about what's happened to her. He hears that happen. And what does he do? Just remains silent. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't get angry. There's no grief. There's no heartbreak. There's no fury. There's none of that. He's completely disengaged. He's not involved in this tragedy that's just happened in his family. What's ironic is who has the right response? His sons. They get angry. They're furious at this horrible injustice, this tragedy has happened. What you see is that Jacob is just disengaged with his family. It's the rest of the family that cares. He just doesn't care anymore. He's not there. He's not present anymore in what's happening in his family. And so his lack of emotion should completely shock us. He's just completely disengaged from his family. So this this man named Hamor, the, the father of Shechem, the bad guy, has shown up and asked, Hey, give us Dinah. We want Dinah. Look at how the story plays out. Pick it up in verse 11. So Shechem, the bad guy, also said to her father and to her brothers, "'If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. "'Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. "'But give me the girl in marriage.' But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. So Shechem is asking for Dinah to be his wife. He makes a bargain. I will pay you whatever you want for her. Notice who it is who responds. It's not Jacob. Jacob is there, but he's silent. He's passive. He's completely disengaged. And so his sons step up. In his absence of participation, His sons step up and you get a sense that things are not going to go well because they are deceiving. It says they, they answer with deceit. So here is what they say, verse 14, to them, Hamor and Shechem and the men of the city. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised. So they tell them every male, every man in your city must be circumcised. And apparently Shechem had a lot of power and really liked Dinah because he says yes to this incredibly painful command. But here's really what's going on. It's, It's not about bringing the Shechemites into the religion of the Jews. It's about deceit because look what happens in verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they, all the men of Shechem, were still in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. Every male. This this is the worst possible sin. This is not murder. This is genocide. So a whole people group is wiped out by these two brothers. And and when you think about what they did, I mean, this is murder through religion. This is as ugly as you can get. They take this symbol of Judaism, this gift that God gave to the Israelites to make them distinct, and they use it as a weapon. It's like us inviting people to get baptized and then holding them under the water till they drown. It's a horrible thing that these guys do. They wipe out an entire city. And and when you think about what has happened, whose fault is it? Ultimately, it's it's Simeon's and Levi's fault. And they will be held responsible by God for this horrible choice that they make. However, where did the failure start? It started with their dad, who compromised with sin and then he checked out. And there's a couple lessons for us to take from this as we, we look at the example of Judah in these failures. God wants us to see parents... when. When we compromise with sin, even in what feels like small ways, and then we check out, we disengage from our kids and their lives, there is no limit to the sin that can happen. Because think about it, this is a believing family. This is a family that the Messiah is going to come from. This is the chosen family. And yet when Jacob compromises with sin and checks out, they become murderers, wipe out a whole people group. Parents, when we compromise with sin, even in ways that feel small, it feels like no big deal. I mean, come on, God, we're honoring you 90% of the way. That's huge. I just, just this little 10% compromise. When we do that, and, and when we disengage from our kids, from our family, when, when, we, when we just turn to, to TV or entertainment or to career or to hobbies, we can inflict catastrophic damage on our families. Now, for me, in those two areas, I think, you know, where is my temptation? Well, I'm kind of tempted in both ways. But when I look back at my life, it's that idea of checking out that is so tempting to me. And I see that in a lot of of fellow dads out there. When when life gets really stressful and hard at home, when there's a lot of emotion and a lot of difficulty, it can be very tempting to just walk into the other room and turn on the TV or get on our phones, or, and I've, I'm often tempted to do this, just stay a little longer at work than we really need to so we can avoid the whole nighttime routine at home. We find ways to check out, and the results can be devastating. On our families. So the bad news is parents, when we compromise with sin and we check out, there is no limit to the destruction that that can cause in our families and in the world. But there's a flip side here. The flip side is that the story does not end in Shechem, God is going to take this family and turn them around. God is going to work in Jacob's life. He's going to lead the family in a new direction. There's going to be incredible healing and restoration that's about to happen in this family's life so that by the end of the book of Genesis, they are in a remarkably better place. There is forgiveness. There is God's faithfulness. They become an example to the world in many good things. So God is going to turn a corner in this family. And that's an incredibly important thing for us to notice because here's the deal, For a lot of us parents, we feel a lot of guilt because of things we've done wrong in the past. We feel like we've blown it and we worry, have we cursed our children? Have we blown it so badly that our family is ruined? And what I want you to notice is that if your family has not murdered a medium-sized town, it is not as bad as Jacob's family. And so if there was hope for his family, there is hope for yours. If God can turn things around and bring restoration and healing to Jacob's family after what they did to Shechem, he can do it in your family. No matter how much you feel like you've blown it as a parent, God can turn things around. He can bring beauty out of those ashes. He can write a new story through your family. So Jacob's family, it's both a warning to us of how serious sin is when parents give in to it, but it's also a, a picture of good news that God can bring healing and hope in any family, no matter how far they have fallen. So let's start to look at the good news now. How does God turn that corner and begin to lead this, this family that is so broken and so evil in a good direction? How does he begin to bring restoration. So we're going to look at, at two really good things that Jacob does that are examples to us. So this is good parenting 101. A couple things that we need to follow Jacob in. So the first thing that he's going to do really well is he is going to lead his family in repentance. So he's going to step up and set the bar for repentance. So look with me at chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities, which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. What we see is that God first speaks conviction. That's the first verse. Verse 1 is really a slap in Jacob's face, because God points back, Jacob, do you remember, when you fled... From your brother Esau, do you remember what you promised me? That you would go to Bethel. It's time. Stop compromising with sin. Got 90% of the way there. You got to get the rest of the 10%. Because look what your compromise has done. So God convicts him. And the key thing is to notice how Jacob responds. Jacob responds with immediate repentance. And it's important to define that word. Sometimes when we think about repentance, we get it confused with confession. So confession is when we acknowledge to God that we were wrong. And it's really important for us believers who've trusted in Jesus as our Savior. When God convicts us of sin and we say, yes, God, you were right. That confession brings God's immediate cleansing in our lives. He washes away the guilt of that sin. But confession is not repentance because repentance goes further. For believers, what does repentance look like? Repentance is action. Repentance is when we respond to that confession by turning away from the sin towards obedience. And and repentance, because it's an action, it has to be proven. So when had repentance happened in Jacob's life? At the end of the passage we read, when he arrived in Bethel. That's when repentance has happened. So in verse 2, I mean, he responds immediately. Okay, guys, let's put away our idols. Let's follow the Lord. Let's go. That's wonderful, Jacob. That's good that you're confessing you were wrong. You're saying, I'm going to obey God. Repentance has happened, though, when you get to Bethel. That's important sometimes for us to acknowledge and understand in our relationships, particularly within a marriage. I, I often will counsel married couples who are trying to understand how do we get over maybe some really bad thing that happened in the past. Like let's say that, that maybe one of the spouses um, lied to the other or, or um, committed uh, adultery or, or abused them in some way. Okay, how, how do we respond to that? So let's say that the offending spouse felt really bad and confessed that was wrong. I'm so sorry. I'll never do that again. Is that repentance? No, that's confession. And it's good. You need to do that. But repentance is to turn away from the sin and demonstrate. Now I'm going to set a new course in life. And repentance takes time. Some people wonder if, if my spouse has said sorry, do I welcome him back with open arms? Not necessarily. Repentance can take time. It can take days or weeks, in Jacob's case, or even years, depending on the offense. Repentance is bigger than confession. It means turning away from that sin and heading out in the direction of obedience. It's got to be proven, and Jacob does that. He follows the Lord's conviction with not only confession, but with repentance. And, And he takes the lead in that, and then he encourages his family to follow in that, and so once he has repented of his own sin, then he, he helps his family to repent of some sins they were struggling with, particularly idolatry. And, and idolatry is this interesting and weird sin in Jacob's family because it began in a very odd place. It was actually his favorite wife, Rachel. The one he, he loves so much. She stole the household idols from her father and, and hid them. So Jacob did not know. He, as best we can tell, did not commit idolatry. But at some point between her stealing them many years before and this point in the story, Jacob has found out, oh yeah, you stole them. You set them up in our house. And now like the whole household is worshiping these idols. But remember his sin, he was disengaged. So he didn't call it out. He did not lead his family to to worship God, to follow God. He just allowed idolatry to fester and it brought destructive consequences. But now finally, once he's repented, now he is ready to help lead his family in repentance. Parents, that's, that's what we're called to do. That's the first step of good parenting is to lead in repentance and that begins in your own life to model repentance to your spouse, to your kids, to your grandkids. And and practically speaking, parents, what that means is that we need to be honest, especially with our kids, when we fall short. We need to confess what we did wrong. We need to allow them to see how, how we grieve over what we did wrong and how we're trying to learn from that and head in a new direction. In my own life, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, like, I, I don't think I ever yelled in anger at anyone until I was a parent. I I got to this place where it's happened a few times where I just lose it and yell. And immediately when that's over, I feel incredibly guilty. But days later, I look back at that and I say, you know what? I'm not happy that it happened. But what I am grateful for is that God gave me this opportunity to show my kids, you know what? I'm not perfect, but when I blow it, I repent. I repent. And so immediately when I, when I yell, I, I, well, it doesn't happen immediately because I'm so angry, but I go away, God convicts and I come back. And I confess that I was wrong. I ask him to forgive me. And, and then we'll pray together. And then we'll talk about it. And, and often it becomes an opportunity over that day and the next day to talk about how do we get control of ourselves? How do we process anger rightly? You know, here's what daddy's going to do. Daddy, sometimes you're just going to see daddy leave the room. And it's not because I don't love you, but it's because this is how I got, I got to get away and catch my breath and figure out how to handle this better. And I want them to see how God leads me through repentance. How God leads me to not only confess the sin, but, but set a new direction in my life. Because I've lived with my kids long enough where they're never going to be under the delusion that they have a perfect dad. That's okay. What I want them to believe is that they have a dad who's quick to repent. Because ultimately that's what they need. They're not going to be perfect. What I want for them is that they've learned from me to repent quickly and Sincerely. Incredibly important lesson. So parents, wherever you've struggled in the past, be willing to, to acknowledge that to your kids and to model for them what genuine repentance looks like. So you model it first in your own life and then you encourage it in your kids. Meaning that when you see the presence of sin in your family, in your spouse, in your kids, wherever it might be, you've you got to be willing to speak up about that. Now, again, first you've dealt with sin in your own life, but then you're willing to, to confront that sin in a loving way. And, and the key, you know, as, as parents, when we think about sin in our kids' lives, the key as you think about this is that you've you, you got to speak openly and honestly about that sin. You've got to confront it. But at the same time, you're going to balance that with a lifetime commitment of unconditional love. And okay? that's the key that your kids need to see. That, that when you see sin in their life, you're going to acknowledge it because you love them too much to ignore it. You're not going to disengage like Jacob did, right? Because that just brings incredible destruction. So you're going to confront it, but whether or not they respond, well, you're going to love them unconditionally. Because that's how God loves us. So we, we think of that as grace and truth. Grace and truth. Parents, we got to have both. Grace and And truth. So, first you deal with your own sin, and then you speak up in the lives of your kids in grace and truth. Okay, that helps turn the corner. In Jacob's life, it can turn the corner in any family. Okay, so Jacob starts by leading in repentance. And the second really good thing he's going to do is he's going to lead in worship. So, look with me starting in verse 7. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alan Bukuth. Then God appeared to Jacob when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, "'Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name.'" Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So what happens here, Jacob builds two altars of worship. First, he builds one in in a place right next to Bethel. And and then God shows up and and reminds him, here are all the promises I made to you. They're all going to come true for you. And then Jacob builds a second altar in Bethel, and he pours out oil on it. And and what's going on there? That's how they worshipped in the ancient world. They didn't get together like this and sing on a Sunday morning. That's very modern type of of worship. In the Old Testament, you worshipped in a very architectural way. You built something. You you actually built a column of stones. It it was called an Ebenezer. So we, we have songs where we sing about that, build an Ebenezer. It's a memorial stone. So you stack these stones. And the reason that you do that is so that every time you or your family pass that stack of stones, you will be reminded to give thanks to God. And that's that's the essence of worship, it's gratitude. It's about giving thanks to God for all the good that he's done. And so Jacob builds these these altars of gratitude to God and pours out oil on them, sacrifices in front of them as an act of saying, God, I'm so thankful to you. Let me give you the best that I have as an expression of my gratitude towards you. Parents, one of our primary responsibilities is to lead our families, our children in worship and in gratitude. You see that throughout scripture. Here's one place really clearly, Psalm 78, tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So this is a, a, a responsibility of parents or really to anyone who will influence the next generation. We are responsible to train them. Amen to give thanks to God. And that's what this verse is about. It's about giving thanks. We we teach them about who God is and what God has done, all of his mighty deeds. And, and that includes teaching our kids all that this book says about the historical work of God. But it also includes sharing with our kids what God has done in our own lives, our own testimony of God's faithfulness. And so we speak these things often to our kids because we want to model for them and teach them how to recognize God's hand in their lives and give thanks. Because that's the essence of worship, and it's actually one of the most significant things for living a life that honors God as you learn to be grateful. The problem with gratitude is that it doesn't come naturally. If you've had kids, you know that. They don't come out saying thank you. You have to teach them that. You have to train them to notice good things and give thanks for those. And, and I think often as parents, you know, we, we raise our kids and we wonder, you know, what, how do I introduce them to the religion of Christianity? How do I introduce them to all the theology in this book? How do I get these spiritual concepts across to them like sanctification and all of this stuff? Well, there's time to build all of that. Where I like to begin with, with kids is just teach them gratitude. If you can get that across to them, teach them to say thank you for the good things God has done. That will lay an incredibly strong foundation in their lives that then everything else can be built upon. Teach the discipline of gratitude. So very practically speaking, what does that look like? When they're really young, you're teaching them to say thank you for, hey, a toy that they enjoyed or, or some enjoyable food that they ate or they had a fun experience. And, and they're thanking you and then reminding, thank God, too, for giving us the, the money to do this. He provided that. And so they're getting in the habit of giving thanks. One of the things that my wife implemented in our family when my kids were younger, around three or four, they really started to fight with each other because they're twins. And we're like, what do we do when they're really mad at each other? And, and how do we, you know, what do we do when they get really whiny about each other? And, and so Julie came up with this idea, well, we may have to do some other stuff, but one of the things we're going to do is just hit pause on the fight that's going on, and both of them in that instant have to say one thing they're grateful for about the other person. That's just that one thing. That was really monumental in in our family and in our kids. Not that there's some magic behind that, but just beginning to teach the kids the discipline of finding something to say thank you for. As they've grown older, the the number has grown. It's not one now, it's multiple. And rather than just something you're grateful about your sibling for, what what are you thankful to God for? What are you thankful um, for your parents for? We're, We're trying to teach them that because that's the essence of worship. You see Jacob take the lead in that in his own family. As they're turning the corner, he is modeling for them. This is what we do regularly. We build altars to God's faithfulness. We remind ourselves and give thanks to God. Do the same thing in your family. Practice the discipline of gratitude. Few things will prove to be more powerful in shaping your kids to follow Jesus. Discipline of gratitude. Incredibly important. So, parents, let, let me try to wrap this together and give you kind of one big concept to walk away with. I think this concept has been one of the most helpful things I've learned in my own parenting. I think it helps us understand what has happened in Jacob's example. So it's summarized in a little phrase. So here it is. Parents, our primary responsibility in life is not for our children. It is to our children. And the change of those prepositions is incredibly important and will help us understand how to follow God faithfully okay so a lot of parents live under the crushing guilt of the preposition for they believe that they are responsible for their children to make good decisions to follow Jesus to become upstanding citizens whatever it might be no you are not you are not responsible for anyone because all human beings are gifted with free choice by God God allows each of us to make our own choices, and your kids will too. They're going to make their own choices, and you can't control it. I think that's one of the fundamental things parents have to learn. We cannot control the outcome. Can't. Can't control the... All you can control is the input, not the outcome. The outcome of your parenting is is based on what your children choose to do, and that's between them and God. Even the best parents can have wayward kids. How do I know that? Because God is the best parent of all and he has some awful kids. (laughs) Parents, we are not responsible for our kids. It's important to acknowledge that. Because otherwise we walk out of here with a crushing amount of guilt and pressure on us. And that's not good for anyone. You are not responsible for your children. You're responsible to your children. And that's where Jacob failed. In his two big failures, he forgot. He is responsible to his children. To what? To model what it looks like to follow God. He's responsible to model to them what worship looks like, what repentance looks like, what it looks like to follow God faithfully. Parents, that is our responsibility, to model to our children what it looks like to follow Jesus. We are responsible to them of modeling repentance and obedience and worship and faithfulness. That is our primary responsibility as parents, is to model to them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so my encouragement for you parents as you leave here today, again, there's there's this warning from Jacob's family. It can be crushing to see the destruction that sin can bring, but there's also the incredible good news that God took this broken family that had committed heinous evil and he turned the corner and he brought redemption and healing and grace when the parents stepped up and led the way in repentance and worship. May we do the same. Parents, we're going to blow it. We're going to fail. Can we be the example though to our kids of what it looks like to walk in genuine repentance and lifelong worship? That's the measure of what it looks like to be a good parent. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are our perfect parent. You are the one and only Father who never fails. We thank you for the example that you have set for us. We praise you for your faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth to live for us and to die for our sins and to rise from the dead to make eternal life possible for us as a free gift, We thank you, Father and Son and Spirit, that you are so gracious with us in the midst of our failings. And for all of us here who are parents, we we just want to acknowledge how grateful we are to you, Heavenly Father, that, that you know everything we've failed to do well. You see all of our parenting mistakes and yet you offer forgiveness freely to us and you have the power and the wisdom and the love to be able to bring good out of even the mistakes we've made. You can redeem any family. You can bring good and beauty out of any difficult situation. We praise you for that, Heavenly Father. We pray that you would use us and grow us and help us to be an example to the next generation. For those of us who are parents, that we would pass on to our kids a legacy of of repentance and worship. For those who are here who who aren't parents, but who are influencing in some way the next generation, we pray that they too would be examples of repentance and worship. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that that we would walk in honesty, that we would acknowledge our, our sin and our failings, but that we would also walk in hope, that we would recognize that you are such a good Father, such a powerful Lord, that even when we blow it, you can bring good. we pray that you would do that. We pray for every family represented in this room, that you would bring good days of growth and healing, and that you would leave behind them a legacy of faithfulness to you. Use us, God, to influence the next generation to love and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.